Welcome to Moonday Mystic by Modern Mystic Shop, the podcast where we help you harness your intuition, your personal power, so that you can live a magical life. Hi guys, welcome. Maya Toll, the author of Letting Magic In. This is the book we'll be discussing today, but she's the author of five other books. Let's see if I can remember them all. Let's see. This is a, <laughs> this is a pop quiz. The Herbiary, the Christiary, the Bestiary or Bestiary? Bestiary. Night School, Bestiary, Night School, the Night School, Letting Magic, taking them all, Letting Magic In. All from memory? Did they forget one? <laughs> I don't think so. Did you get the Wild Wisdom Companion at the end? No, Siri, no. Siri, Siri jumped in and needed to talk to me. There's some words that I say, and my Siri just comes on. I'm like, oh, I, I did so not I'm call you. I'm very familiar with your work. <laughs> I'm very familiar with your work, and I just wanted to share with you before we get into the probing questions. I loved this book. I loved reading it. I could hear your voice in it. And it's such a gentle tale. I found it to be, it's like this awakening story, this coming of age story. And uh, it's a memoir, which is different from your prior work. But it, it was soothing to read. <laughs> it was just like a gentle way to tell, because you did, you know, everyone goes through these pivotal moments. Uh, but it wasn't like an anxiety inducing read sometimes when you read about people's <laughs> coming of age, right? It's It was really gentle and melodic and you can really paint a picture using words and luckily I'm a friend of yours and I can say for those who don't know you personally when you read this book you really do like it really does sound like you but you're very eloquent like you're not your average jargon type of person even just like speaking with you over coffee um <laughs> so I'm excited to dive in I did I was mentioning before we started recording I did get teared up reading it because for me, I'm just going to shower compliments. It's really moving for me to experience people in whatever expression or form expressing themselves fully. And that's what I felt like I got from this book is you expressing yourself fully. And I get moved by that. I get moved from listening to singers sing, like even if it's on a game show, you know, and they're just singing their hearts <laughs> out. It's like anytime someone has that authentic, aligned expression of their creativity, it's very moving to me. And I got that feeling reading this work. And that's a rare thing. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you. It's, I mean, you've read my other books, so you know how different this one is. And I had to teach myself how to write narrative, um, like in a narrative form. Um, and I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction. So I was like looking at fiction books and like, okay, how do you make a, how do you craft a story? How do you, how do you write dialogue? How do you um, bring characters to life? Like how much description do you need? And, and things like that, like just really technical craft questions um, yeah. that I've never had to ask myself before. So yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was a steep learning curve. It was a fun learning curve. Um, but I also wasn't sure that I like did it. Like, I'm like, did I make it to the top? I have no idea. <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah. You know, I've been saying to people, what is this thing I'm sending out into the world? I don't know what it is. So um, yeah. I'm glad that whatever it is, it feels true. 
you know? It does. And I like that you say whatever it is, because what you've done in this book and and through the story of of your life is sort of like define ambiguous words like magic, like (laughs) blessing, like, like, and it sort of makes sense that this work would be not necessarily undefinable, but like defined differently by different people's experience of it, just like words like magic or what a blessing is or things like that, that we've, that you've covered in the book. So it kind of fits the theme. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think that one of the things I have struggled with since I started doing this work is the language of it. Like, you know, I remember from a very young age, I, I didn't know what to do with the word God. You know, God was the Jewish God of my childhood who, you know, I pictured as like this grumpy and strict old man sitting on his clouds up in the sky, um, making a lot of rules that seemed to be like against women from what I could tell from Mm. the prayer book and the Bible and things like that. And so as I tried to find my way to a sense of um, something larger than humanity, something I could put, put my faith in beyond, you know, what I could see in the mundane world, I would run into these stumbling, stumbling blocks of words, you know, like, like prayer was the thing we did in synagogue to the grumpy guy in the sky. Well, I don't want to <laughs> like talk to the grumpy guy in the sky. Um, so like a lot of this for me, a lot of this journey has been trying to find language that resonates for me. And, and at the same time, doesn't like trigger my, that sounds goofy and ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't want to be a Disney princess either. So like, how do you find the words that allow you to feel like a real person, not a cartoon, um, having a really rich and deep spiritual experience, um, and yet not fall into the tropes that we've kind of all been brought up within our individual religions that might trigger us. Yeah. Well said, of course, well said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love this. Okay, so the book I kind of devised it in my mind is, and it seems like it is, in three different definitive stages of your life, of you in, are you in your 30s through this whole, from start to finish in this book? Um, I'm in my late 20s at the very beginning. And then we kind of move into the early 30s, yep. So it's sort of a kind of coming of age story, because I do kind of believe that, that that's the coming of age period of time. People talk about teenagehood and all that. But to me, this is where you sort of define yourself as an adult and you start to create your sense of autonomy more fully. Um, so there's a lot of transitions in the book. So I guess my question to you is, uh, it seems like you've got a lot of lessons. Do you find that some of the richer teachings that you've had have been revealed to you during times of transformation? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that we're, we're terrified of change. And even I was, Mm -hmm. I used to be a grade school teacher and like kids can't do transitions. They'll be great, Mm -hmm. like through their reading lesson. And then you try to get them to move from reading to math. And it's not that there's anything wrong with math. It's just that that in between time is super hard for them. And I think that 
it's the same for us adults. You know, like if we're just reading, we're good. If we're just doing math, we're good. But in that in-between time where we don't know what we're doing, we kind of fray and fall apart. And um, you have to fall apart a little bit to let the next thing in. You know, you need some cracks. You need a sense of not being sure so that there's room for something else so that you ask a question and don't just, you know, charge from one thing to the next, the way we do when we're feeling confident. Yeah, for sure. And so you've learned a lot of lessons and you share them through these stories in your book. Did the, or did the lessons sort of emerge with you in real time or were some of these lessons gleaned upon reflection in retrospect? Mm, good question. I would say both. I would say that, you know, every lesson has layers. And so, you you know, you get some part of it immediately. Um, and you pick through it in the moment. And, you know, you're looking for the metaphors and the images and the things that are um, grabbing your consciousness in that moment at the age you are, you are then. And then if you're, if you're lucky and you have a chance to go back and reflect five years, 10 years, 20 years later, you see layers that you couldn't have seen then, you know, you understand where your life has gone since then. And it's almost like you see the foreshadowing in that moment that you, you couldn't have recognized at that time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, those are sort of the threads that I think that you do tie in nicely in this story because you'll be, you know, towards the end, you would like throw back to some of the other events that kind of led up to that time. And I guess building on that theme, what is the foreshadowing, if any, that you saw during this period of your, of your life that would foreshadow your career as an author and a storyteller and a writer in retrospect? Can you find those pinpoints? You know, truthfully, I think it's all the journaling. Um, this book, yeah. this book was based on eight journals. You know, people say, "How do you remember so much?" I'm like, "I, I don't. My memory is crap." Um, but I had eight journals from this time period, and um, what I what I learned writing this book about memory, because I've always said my memory is crap. Like I'm kind of like a <laughs> snail, and after it goes around the curve within my little shell behind me, I can't see it anymore. Um, but what I learned with this book was, if I just have one tiny little nugget, I can start to draw the memory back toward myself. So my journals gave me so many of those tiny little nuggets, like enough that I could remember the feeling. I recorded a lot of emotions in my journals, um, like sometimes to the point where they feel overwrought to me, reading them back, mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa. Um, but <laughs> reconnecting with those emotions gave me an opportunity to, to like feel it again. And after I could feel it again, I could start to see it again. Mm. Was that tough, revisiting it in, from an emotional place? I think some of it that was tough was just like how bad the writing was, <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah. I think that when I was writing those journals, I really thought they were masterpieces. Like I was, you know, oh. it was, it was a writing practice, not just, um, 
me recording my day or writing down gratitudes or doing morning pages or like all the different journaling exercises we do. It was that part of me that always wanted to be a writer, thinking that I was creating my masterpiece, like right there in the journal. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was a lot of crap. <laughs> there was, well, there was just a lot of, of, right. There's a lot of really overwrought emotional crap. <laughs> Well, that's kind of what it sounds like too, aligned to what we were just talking about, about the lessons learned in the moment that's captured in your journal. And then the retroactive look with maturity and time is the book in a way. Yes. Yeah. And maturity and time and also years at this point. So I started blogging in the early aughts and did like a weekly blog for, oh, a decade. Um, And then started writing books shortly thereafter. So, you know, we're talking now about like, I don't know, 15 or 18 years of really honing the writing craft. Um, Mm -hmm. And that had to happen before this book could happen. I couldn't have even, I couldn't have written this book before I wrote The Illustrated Herbiary, my first book. Um, Like Mm -hmm. I needed all that time of, really getting a handle on how to communicate with other people through language um, mm-hmm. to be able to write this book. That makes sense. So speaking of journaling and all of those eight journals, um, is this a practice that you would recommend for folks? Like, was it a cathartic? Because it sounds like you were practicing and training to be an author, right? So most people are not journaling with those ambitions necessarily. Were there other benefits that you could recommend through that practice for just people that are listening? So I think for me, and one of the things I've learned is that all our brains work so incredibly differently. So I can really only say for me, but um, I often wanted to be witnessed in my, like in my emotional state you know, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know if that's a universal thing that like wanting mm-hmm. someone to see and understand the state that I was in, in a particular moment in time. And I, I think that we put that on our partners a lot. Like they're yeah. supposed to see us. They're supposed to see us clearly. They're supposed to understand the deep tumult within us and somehow extract the gems of wisdom and say exactly the right thing. And I think romance novels have really kind of uh, put us in a bad place with this. You know, we think that um, if we had just the right partner, they could somehow open the little door to our brain and and see what's going on and just say the exact right words at the exact right time. And it's really unfair to put that on another human. Like, I know I can't do it, right? Um, I often say exactly the wrong thing. Um, So... (laughs) So having, having a journal was a way of um, reflecting myself to myself. Like, it's like Mm -hmm. I could feel seen without like bleeding the ick all over the people around me. And I, I think that it's really good for that. Like I had, I have this little crazy fantasy scene in my head. I've had this in my head forever where like I'm throwing a huge temper tantrum about something woe is me. (laughs) And, you know, whoever I'm with, whether it's a partner or a really good friend, like just kind of drolly says, are you done yet? You know, (laughs) just like that acknowledgement of like the drama that you are bringing to the moment. Yeah. And the dogs that I am bringing to the moment. Um, Uh, If anyone else can hear the barking. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think that the journal kind of answered that. It's like, mm-hmm. I could, I could put the, the drama on the page and because I was writer in training, I could dramatize it, you know, in a yeah. way that felt very satisfying. Um, so for anyone who sometimes feels like, you know, their emotions are too big or they're putting their emotions on the people around them in a way that's a burden, you know, like yeah. I think that we, we forget to think about that, that our emotions can become a burden for someone else if we don't temper them. And especially if the other person is energy sensitive and you're like throwing around energetically, um, all of that, sure, that's a lot. And I think that, that a journal can be a really good friend for, you know, evening out your energy, getting to the point where you understand what you actually really think and feel. And if you have like a bit of drama queen in you like me, then it gives you a place to like take that out without taking it out on someone. Do you still use this tool in this way or are you not journaling anymore? You know, I don't journal much anymore. I, I have found Again, I've spoken to women who have had other completely different experiences, but I went through really early menopause. The women in my family do. And um, like my emotional state evened out a lot, like just all the, Mm -hmm. all the dramatic highs and lows kind of went away to the point where sometimes I'm like, hold on a second. Am I still alive? I'm not having these like crazy, (laughs) crazy mood swings back and forth. Um, so I, I don't need it for that reason. And I, and I write all the time now. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I don't need it for kind of the writing practice because writing practice is what I do, you know, eight yeah. hours a day. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about some of the themes that I've noticed reading through your book. Um, and so let's talk about, I mean, a huge theme is, like I've mentioned, is transition. And and we talked about like the top, the the elementary school kids or whatever, and like not having grace and ease in transition. And I've noticed that through this story, it seemed like the transitions got less chaotic for you over time. So I'm curious, uh, what what do you think made the transitions over time have more ease for you? Um, and in a way that you can share that will help others that we all have these sort of anxieties regarding change and transition. Yeah. So for me, the real turning point was when I began studying nature-based spirituality and spiritual practices. You know, once I started thinking about things like the phases of the moon, the cycles of the year, um, it became very apparent to me that our cultural push towards growth and expansion is not actually the natural cycle, right? It's only part of the natural Mm. cycle. The natural cycle has that expansion and then it has, you know, the, the drawing back in, it has the exhale and the inhale. And culturally we've been taught to focus only on, you know, that tremendous pulling in of energy. And then like, we just, spread it out into the world, get ourselves bigger, 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 bigger. Like you think of all the visualizations where you're expanding your energy field. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any visualizations where you're pulling your energy field back in towards you? You know, where like, even in our um, spiritual practices, um, we're always focused on expansion. 
taking up more space. Like, you know, I, I can't tell you how often I, I hear things like women need to learn to take up more space. Um, how do we expand our energy fields to take up more space? And yes, we need that. And we also need to take up less space. We need to take up no space. And then we need to go through the cycle again and become big and then become small, you know? And if you watch the moon, if you watch a tree, you you see this over and over again. Um, it's not sustainable to just become bigger and bigger and bigger like a blowfish, you know, eventually mm. you pop. And I think like we see that pop in our exhaustion and just that, that moment where you can't do it anymore, your inability to go on. Um, you know, in the human body, if you exhale enough, it creates an inhale. And if you inhale enough, it creates the exhale. Like, you know, there's a, there's a reflexive action there. So once I began to really understand that and to um, start basing my life practices on the cycles that I was seeing in the natural world, it became absolutely apparent that, of course, you know, there was going to have to be the moment of shedding, of letting go. And after I said, of course, that moment has to happen. Well, then the next thing was, well, what happens if instead of resisting it, what happens if instead of, you know, trying to tape the leaves back on the tree, you say, <laughs> okay, we're in autumn, things are falling, things are falling apart. Let's, let's do this. And you step into it with as much enthusiasm as you step into expansion. And that changed everything for me. That is really powerful. And something I've been learning too is like um, some of this push, the expansion, the efforting, and you've seen me in many stages of this. Um, I've started asking a similar question, like what happens if I do less? And then that's been my mantra for a little while. It's like, just do less, <laughs> just do less. And whenever I was finding myself doing less in the past, I was thinking there must be something wrong. Why am I not doing more? And a lot of people, even in my readings are asking, I feel like I could be doing more. And a lot of times the answer, if you're listening is actually the opposite. It's to do, to do less. And then you create relaxation. You create room for co-creation. You don't always have to be the one rowing the boat. Sometimes even doing less, you'll find your partner will row the boat or a friend will step in and there's levels of intimacy or trust that are built because you're exhaling, right? Yeah. And you're not, you're not assuming that you're the only one who can do it. Yeah. That's a right? big one, huh? That's oh, a yeah. big one. Yeah, I think Especially a lot entrepreneurs. of right? <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot of our I must do it is because I don't trust anybody else to do it. Like there's a there's a yeah. trust issue there. Um and I would say beyond, you know, just the the rest and the doing less is the actively letting go. You know, not just kind of passively doing less or even actively doing less. But what happens if you take it one step further and you assist in any dismantling that Ugh. needs to happen? So hard. <laughs> I know. I know. 
I know. And the thing is that I've learned is like, yes, assisting in the dismantling actually makes it easier because as you know, in nature, it rebalances itself with or without you. Same with your wife, right? There's a, yeah. a difference between sort of the energy of the death card in tarot or like the tower. <laughs> I feel yes. like the death card, you're sort of participating in that natural rhythm. The tower, it's like, boom, because you didn't let go, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The towers, the tower is what happens when you don't participate. Yeah. Like, right. When you don't step up to the edge and put on your parachute and say, I'm jumping, mm -hmm. then the death card comes in and pushes you out the window. So, <laughs> right. So, so there is that kind of like, okay. Um, it's not just about slowing down. We talk a lot about slowing down, a lot about relaxing, but it's about understanding the seasons of your own life so that mm -hmm. when you are at a stage um, where things are unwinding, you actively unwind, you help mm -hmm. the process, you dance through the process. And it also sounds like living in that way puts a rightness on yourself and a lot of the ways that you're probably organically feeling. And a lot of times we find like we make ourselves wrong for, you know, wanting to let go or a sense of obligation to hold on to the thing or the identity or the relationship or the project or whatever. Um, it sounds like honoring and participating in the letting go process. Uh, yeah. It makes it right in a way. Like it's okay I, I, to let go. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And I like, I love the way you're saying it because I think that what has happened for me is that once I make that decision, there's a sense of flow and you become a part of the flow and that feels right. It feels yes. good. You know, so yes. even though you're in a dismantling, a letting go and unwinding, um, it feels like exactly where you're supposed to be. And it's actually exciting in, in the moment of doing it. Um, so instead of viewing your own life as having these kinds of highs and lows, like the expansion becomes the high and the, you know, unwinding becomes the low, instead of having that um, idea of what the rhythm is, you can stay in the high, like you can stay in the mm -hmm. emotional sense of clarity and strength and um, being in the right place through the the unwinding and the unraveling. Yes. Yeah. So it's okay. so it right. So it's not about a depression or an emotional roller coaster of high low. It's about like these are the flows of life, and I can enjoy both of them equally: the expansion and the unraveling. Well, this, I'm wondering if this aligns with my, my next question in the book, there was, I, I can't remember if you wrote this or if you were quoting, well, you wrote it either way, I guess, but like quoting a teacher, but it said it was safety doesn't happen in nature. And I found that to be striking because I've never really thought about that before. And it's very true. And you can watch any nature documentary and everyone's spending for themselves, right? I mean, it's not, it doesn't matter how cute you are. It's like who's fastest or fittest or whatever. And I have found in my life that when I'm in that safety space, personally, I am less apt to grow, change, adjust. But when I feel a little bit unsafe, there's pressure applied, it sort of forces 
I guess the discomfort and feeling not safe forces the change to get to the next phase. I guess I'm trying to seek safety again. I'm not sure. Um, does how does this or does this relate to what you were saying with the flows and the natural rhythm? I mean, it seems like built into nature is that feeling of not being safe and how animals take care for themselves and they migrate and they move and then they change. Yeah. Can you please help me connect the dots with my process? With <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's interesting because that you know the beginning of that thought that safety doesn't exist in nature started when I was like in fourth grade and I read Helen Keller's diary and she talks about how security like is an illusion, and mm -hmm. so I've been thinking about that since fourth grade you know, that idea that security is an illusion. And then when I started studying um, more nature-based spiritualities and really like looking out at the natural world and saying, how does that reflect my own life, my own experience of life? I am a part of nature. So like, what does nature look like within me? Um, I was like, oh, wow, there is no safety out there. You know, the other, mm -hmm. the other night we'd just gone to bed and, um, the coyotes started howling and they sounded like they were right under our window. And I was like, whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. So I think that um, we learn from stepping into unsafe spaces, but we also have to like take care of ourselves in those spaces. You know what I mean? Because they, they are unsafe. They're inherently unsafe. And so if you put yourself in an unsafe situation just to learn, you, you might get a, a bigger lesson than you intended. But, you know, I think this is why we scuba dive and parachute mm. and um, travel to countries where we don't speak the language. Like we want to see where that edge is, mm -hmm. um, where we're uncomfortable enough that we have to learn something new. Yeah. Right. Um, and yet you push that too far and, the, and you truly are in, in a dangerous space. So it's like that this cycle of moving ourselves a little bit into danger so that we can learn something new, so we can have the adrenaline rush, so we can feel that sense of aliveness and then refinding the place of safety, catching our breath, integrating our lessons. And then we do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for me, I've never been one to seek like physical danger. You know, like I'm not a hang glider or a mountain climber. Um, I tend to push myself more into like intellectual unknowns. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's what's more interesting for me. But I, I, I think just like, look at where you do it in your own life and look at whether you're doing it in a way that's healthy or a way that you're truly putting yourself in danger. Like I, I know people who do it um, on the romantic front, like always mm -hmm. wanting the next partner, the next experience. And like up to a certain point, that's, that's safe. And then you cross a line and that's not so safe anymore. Right. So there's mm -hmm. like, with all these things, there's a line. And like, for me, you might say, oh, well, my, you're, you're looking kind of more on the intellectual edge of things. There's no line there, but, but there is a line there. If you read the book, you'll see that there are some places where <laughs> Um, my sanity definitely began to get frayed around the edges. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like, that's 
that is the the for real danger when you push yourself into existentialism and nihilism and some of these um, thought processes where you you know go through the 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 thinking that life is meaningless, that everything around you is meaningless. Um, mm. You know, when you go through thought processes where you're dabbling with things that are a bit dark, you can get towards mm. the edges of your own psyche. Um, I think we saw this culturally as a group with all the conspiracy theories in the past, you know, five mm -hmm. years. Um, th those are the frayed edges of our collective intellect. And if you, if you push beyond them too far, you're, you're really truly in the danger zone, either as an individual or yeah. as a society. I will find, I will say that there are a couple of times mentally when you're talking about the, you know, the mind where I've gone really deep into the dark stuff for periods of time. And I will say that it helped me not be afraid in a weird way, because once I confronted it, the darkest of it, and then came back. Okay. Not like I want to hang out down there, but I'm like, Oh, I can make it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, yeah. or it's almost like the fear of the unknown by like, I'm not going to open that box. I'm not. And it's just like sitting there all your life. And then you open it and you're like, okay, now I can deal with it, you know? Um, right. So I do think not going over the edge, but pushing those limits have been confidence builders in a weird way for me to just know whatever is in there, I can manage. Yeah. And Personally. I think, you know, I absolutely agree. It's a confidence builder. It It teaches you what you can handle. And it also teaches you that you can come back to safety. You know, and I think like that's the traditional hero's journey, right? Like you go, yep. you confront the thing, you you slay the dragon, you bring something back, but you come back. And that's that's a piece of the journey that I sometimes see people in the spiritual work skipping. Like people want to mm. go deep into the spiritual realms and they don't want to come back. And that's dangerous too. You've got you've got to make the return journey. Um, ah. yeah. yeah. If you That's don't make the return journey, you haven't gotten the lesson. You, right. you know, you haven't had the chance to assimilate the lesson into your life. Um, right. so yeah, like, you know, you keep going that way, like beyond this place lies monsters at a certain point, you got to turn around. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. And well put, um, so at least one time, but I think maybe more than once, you had mentioned about your inner in the book, your inner world being reflected in your outer world and vice versa. And I love to look at life this way. It makes me very inquisitive and introspective, but I'm not sure that a lot of people have experience with that view, right? And it's sort of in a way, I'm kind of thinking like the hanged man. It's like looking at it upside down, like not everything is as it seems and looking at the world as in reflection, et cetera. Um, I'm just curious if there's any practices that you do or ways that people, if they wanted to start to dabble in this notion of my outer world as a reflection of my inner and vice versa, how they can take that on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually really simple. Choose something, a color or a symbol and focus on it. And you'll begin to notice how often that pops up in your mm -hmm. everyday life. Um, you know, start simple, like just choose a color 
Mm-hmm. You know, when you wake up in the morning, be like, okay, today I'm, I'm, I'm yellow. And then see how often, you know, you see the color yellow. Um, a lot of this is the way our brain is actually wired. Whatever, whatever mm-hmm. we focus on, we notice more of, yeah. right? So whatever you are focusing on in your life, you're going to start noticing more of. Mm-hmm. And some people call this the law of attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, it it has a lot to do with just our hard wiring. You know, mm-hmm. the world is full of a zillion things. There's so much input out there. And we filter when we're moving through mm-hmm. the world for what's important to us in that moment. I mean, it's, it's a survival technique. You can't see and notice everything. Um, but once you call something new up, you're going to start to see and notice it. Um, So that becomes energized. And then when that thing passes out of your consciousness and you choose something new, then that new thing becomes energized and you start seeing it. Um, And so if you allow it, it becomes this beautiful way of kind of dancing with synchronicity in, in your everyday life, you know, like... I I used to pull a card in the morning and it was amazing how many things throughout the day would relate to the card that I pulled in the morning. Mm-hmm. Well, they related to the card I pulled in the morning because I was holding the consciousness of that card in my head all day, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so as I was getting different input from the world, I was noticing the things that aligned with that card, which allowed me to go deeper into the meaning of the card. And by the end of the day, I'd have a whole new um, thought about like what that card was and what it meant. And so there was like a growth process that happened through the noticing, through the like natural neural processes of the brain. Um, I don't consider magic something that's like outside of everyday life. I consider magic a way of looking at and working with the things that are already a part of our everyday life. You know, Mm -hmm. like you're not going to, you're not going to escape your brain. So use the way your neurons naturally want to work to um, help you achieve a deeper spiritual awareness and step into the places that allow you to feel in sync and in flow. I mean, why not? Right. And I find this, you know, this might be how the brain works. I'm not an expert in that, but we're meaning makers, right? So we make everything mean something. A lot of the times we choose the negative meaning or what does it say about me in a negative way. And so what I love about this sort of practice is you get to make meaning, you get to decide what things mean and you kind of skew your vision, maybe sometimes in a more positive, you know, a more positive direction than normal, right? And then to tie it kind of into nature, it's just like watering a plant, right? So like when you water a plant, it thrives for the most part, not the snake plant I've learned. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, the other less desirable things, they like wither from lack of attention. And uh, yeah, I do think that we get to be selective in how we filter and process the world in a way that makes us meaning and harmonious, you know, within ourselves the best we can. And that's exactly why gratitude journals work. You're training yourself to see the good things Mm. instead of the bad things. Um, 
you know, your brain is actually more geared towards the bad because that's what keeps you safe out in nature. Yeah. Like speaking of safety. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like, you know, you need to know what plant is poisonous and what animal is going to bite you. Um, so we're, we're geared towards sensing danger and seeing danger and seeing the negative. And we have to kind of train ourselves to see the positive. Hmm. So, um, in a lot of coming of age stories, like the theme is sort of who am I? And you find these characters or people kind of finding themselves. And you asked a question in your, in your book that says, I'll quote here, who do I want to be in this next incarnation of self? And the way that that is framed to me seems more empowering, seems like more participatory, you know, it's like, who am I? But it was like, who am I? Like, who do I want to be? So I'm just curious about, is that what you think what life is about? I know it's a big question. What is the meaning of life? But do you think (laughs) it's about finding, finding ourselves? Or do you think it's about defining ourselves and making choices or something in between? Oh, that's such a good question, Cal. Um, I I think that it's probably something in between because I do think that we have like an inherent nature. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it takes us a while to accept our inherent nature. Like we often fight as a, as a younger person because we see something on TV or, you know, on social media and we want to be that even though we're not. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's that level of, you know, my eyes really are going to be Brown. Um, for some reason I had decided that lavender eyes were the coolest thing growing up. I don't even (laughs) know who has lavender eyes or where the heck I got that probably something in like the Hobbit. Um, but I, you know, (laughs) I was never going to be good enough until my eyes turned lavender and guess what? My eyes are never going to turn lavender. Um, so I do think that there's that, that bit of accepting, you know, who, who you are, like just how your own brain works and, um, the physicality of who you are. And then there's also that self, um, growth trajectory that you get to choose, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of like I'm aiming there and watching yourself hopscotch to, the next place. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think to be happy, those two things have to come together. Like, I think mm-hmm. that if you're just hopscotching yourself to the next place, but you're miserable with your physical body um, and unaccepting of your physical body, I mean, like, yes, there are some things you can change, but you know, like your height, you're, you're pretty much stuck with that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. your eye color, you can, put in color contacts, but at some point you have to pull them out and there are your brown eyes. Um, So so if, if you're kind of like hopscotching yourself forward um, through the more goal oriented bits of life without accepting the inherent parts of who you are, I I think that you're probably going to find yourself unhappy. And if you accept the inherent parts of who you are, but you don't, um, steer yourself, you know, mm-hmm. have the discipline to steer yourself toward the things that you care about. Um, then I think you're going to hit a point in your life where you're going to go, Oh, wow. Like there are some things I, I, that were meaningful to me and I never allowed myself to, you know, experience the fullness of them. Um, yeah. 
So I, I do think it's both. It's both. So uh, in the final chapters of your book, you introduce us to your teacher. Will you remind me of what her name is in, uh, in Ireland? Oh, my teacher in Ireland. So you know what? This is so funny. I changed her name in the book like three oh, sorry. times. Um, oh. I'm not going to tell you her real name because she has a pseudonym. No, I'm sorry, I wasn't. Um, but yeah. I, no, but it's really funny. I should, I should, I should remember where I landed. I think I finally called her Eleanor. Did I call her Eleanor? Yeah, Eleanor. Yeah, Eleanor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, sorry. So the I, Eleanor person in the book was a teacher uh, of yours in Ireland. And I was curious because I love having teachers. I've had teachers come in and out of my life. I'm curious um, if what importance do you place on having a teacher or a mentor specifically in that phase of your life? And I was also wondering if you've had any others since. Yeah, I think I think having a mentor is so important. You know, having someone who's been there, done that, and also just willing to call you on your shit. Mm-hmm. Um sometimes a mentor is a good friend. Sometimes it's a family member. Um, you know, like sometimes you're going to go off and kind of meet the archetypal teacher the way I did, but there are probably people in your life currently fulfilling that role, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, so, so recognizing that I think is important. Um, you don't have to go off to Ireland and, you know, apprentice to an herbalist for a year to, to have someone like that in your life. But I think for me, um, the, the biggest thing is having someone who can say like, mm, no, you're, you're kind of fooling yourself right now. Like you're not being true to yourself. You're, you're not putting enough energy in You're you know, you're not all the way in like just all those things where, um, all those moments where, um, you only have half the lesson mm-hmm. and you need someone to kind of give you a push to step all the rest of the way in to the lesson. Um, I, th- I think that it's important to have those people who will do that and who that you trust to do that, you know, because mm-hmm. there are also situations I'm sure we can all think of where someone tried to push us to like our own next level and we walked away from that person. You know, we were like, yeah. mm, no, I don't want to deal with that. And we put it on them. We put it as, I don't want to deal with you instead of, I don't want to deal with me and my fear or inability to step into this next thing. Yeah. Um, right. So, right. Like I, I would say I always have these people, they come and go at, you know, at different moments. Um, I've had business coaches who have fulfilled this role. I have, I have writer friends who fulfill this, this role now. Um, my friend, Steph Jagger, who's another memoirist, she's just really brilliant for kind of seeing sideways of the way I see things. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll plant my flag and Steph will go, huh, is that really where you want to plant your flag? You know, <laughs> and she'll, she'll yeah. present the whole situation in some other way. And I'll be like, dang it. Um, so yeah, I think that it's really easy to get information from like the internet or a book. Um, but what it's not easy to get is that, that personal, like, I, I think it's kind of back to that sense of being seen that I was talking about in the journal with mm, the journals, Yeah, you know, someone who sees you clearly and says, mm, yeah, you think you're going like straight towards your goal, but you're actually turned about, Yeah, you know? Yeah. That's invaluable. Yeah. So 
another thing I noticed in a couple parts in your book is how you seem to use your body as an instrument to intuition, emotion, all of that. So there's two cases I can think of in particular. One, you were actually saying that, you know, I've got attuned to where joy felt, what joy felt like in my body or stress or this or that to very specific areas. And then another way that you kind of used your body in the book as a compass, so to speak, and I used you this too, is you were trying to find chickweed. Is that what it's called? Chickweed? And then you closed your eyes and let let your body sort of find it. And that really resonated with me because there's a joke within my team that I always find whatever crystal it is that we're hunting for at the gem shows. They're like, we've got to find carnelian. No one has it. And I just close my my eyes, check into my body and just kind of navigate my way right to the box or to the person who knows the answer. Um, so I definitely believe that our bodies are attuned and as like an antenna. So I'm curious if you have any tips or tricks or best practices for people to orient themselves more to their body as a guide. Uh, you know, because we talk about a lot of times people, you know, they leave their body, they're trying to astral travel, they're trying to do all these talk to guides and all these things out there when there's a lot of information right here. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was I was a very um overweight kid and I was kind of always told by my mom just how overweight I was. And so I was really disassociative from my body um for most of my younger life. And so discovering my intuition and kind of housing it in this body that had been, you know, a very strange home for me. Um, for most of my younger years was really truly transformative. Um, and one of the exercises that I learned from a woman who unfortunately is is no longer with us, but she was an herbalist that we we called her Lady B, Barbara. Um, and Lady B taught me an exercise and and this is actually a scene in the book so you can kind of see the the fullness of it um, in the writing. but, she taught me to pass things through my chakras. And so, you know, what you do is you start it at your crown and um, you pass something and it's easiest to start with like food because, you know, like you have a sense of what foods your body likes. So this, so you can kind of test with foods that, you know, your body likes and foods that you know your body doesn't like to just get a feel for it. Um, so imagine yourself like holding a strawberry and you kind of start at your crown chakra and you pass it in front of your chakras very slowly until you get to your root chakra and you hold it there. And um, you'll find that your body either pulls toward the thing or pushes away from the thing. And so this is just a great um, beginning exercise to start to get you in tuned with your body and start seeing that your body really does react to, to things in your world, like in a way that shocked the living daylights out of me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I using did your body ex- as a pendulum sort of. Exactly. And that's exactly what I call it, using your body as a pendulum. And, um, you know, in the book, I I go through some experiments that I did with this because I did not believe that it was real um, (laughs) and had to prove it to myself. (laughs) I love that, though, because it's the kinesthetic nature of your body. And I will just say this off. This is my unpopular opinion about pendulums. And I'm open. Like, you believe what you want to believe. A lot of people think that it's spirit talking to them. 
I happen to believe that it's these micro movements in your body that are amplified for you to see with how the pendulum moves. And it's a kinesthetic process to me more than a spiritual process regarding, you know, I'm not saying you can't have a spiritual process in your own body, but it's not like a spirit necessarily moving the pendulum one way or other, in my opinion, other people that I love and respect. (laughs) My opinion aligns with your opinion. I I feel like um, the pendulum is a way of amplifying your own intuition so you can visually see it. Like it's just, you know, bringing it into the physical world. I mean, I think that if you're a person who talks with with spirits or ghosts or things on another plane and you ask them to embody the pendulum, Mm -hmm. then you could use the pendulum in that way. But I think that when you just grab your pendulum and use it, um, you know, it's just amplifying your own, not just, I mean, it's huge. It's amplifying your own intuition so that you can visually see what's going on. Yeah. Okay, I've got one more question in clo- in closing, and I feel like you're going to like it because it has to do with words, <laughs> and I know you. And we've had lots of conversations on words and definitions and what they mean. Yeah. Uh, and also, if you follow my on Instagram, I think it's on your Instagram, right, where you put the definitions of certain words that are interesting and like what they mean. Yeah, I, I was I doing. I was words. doing that for. I was doing that for a very long time. Um, I I didn't run out of words, but it it was a lot of work. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Finding okay, new so words. I, lo- I loved this definition for a blessing. And in the book, you describe, you know, um, as part of the practice, you know, you learn that you were actually blessing things, even though there was maybe an aversion to that word due to, at the time, I don't know if you still identify as atheist, but you were going through that sort of process for yourself. And so the, as I quoted from the book, it says, love flowing in an electrical loop was blessing. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, I it's, love it. it's yeah, it's toward the it's towards the end. And um my my teacher in Ireland had um told me to offer a blessing to a rose bush. And mm-hmm. I was pissed. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you're gonna make me do a blessing? Like, what is this? Um you know, cause my brain immediately went to religion and I had an experience that allowed me to redefine that word and that experience for myself, um, you know, in a way that I, that I've carried forward. Um, and like, I, I feel like one of the, one of the things my teacher said, and it's just like stuck with me and it has now become a personal mantra is we all have the right to bless. And yeah. so, right. And so with that definition that Kelly just shared, um, you know, this idea that we all have a right to be in that loop of love, that exchange of energy, you know, that's not just something for a priest or a rabbi or, you know, a spiritual leader to do that's for all of us to do. And like, what if all of us did that? What if all of us were creating like these you know, energetic loops of love, this exchange of energy, um, be a very different world. It would be. And I want to thank you for that anecdote and including that and even in your prologue, discussing the definition of magic and our personal conversations on defining words like witch or whatever we talk about at any given time. I think what I've learned from you and what I take from this book and just my relationship with you is that I do think it's important that we start defining words for ourselves 
and as a means to help fortify our personal identity and ideals. And you more than anyone in my life have given me in a weird way permission to do that and to be, because of your use of language, very intentional with the words that you choose, but also how to make meaning of these words. Because I've learned that definitions of words like these, like that are so old and used and wrought with religious I don't know, you have a better word for it. Overtones. <laughs> Overtones. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Like these are ways in which we can reclaim these beautiful, simple things. And not for anything, these words and actions belonged to us long before religion claimed them for themselves. And it's sort of like a, a rewilding or something of this language that you offer through this book and through um how you approach language that. I find is very special. Oh, I love that. A rewilding of language. Thank you. No, <laughs> yeah. one, I mean, no one's, no one's ever pointed, like I have seen my own internal struggle with words and with language, but no one has ever kind of um, pointed it out in such a gorgeous and concise way before. Thank you. Oh, that, you're so welcome. That's yeah. Thank you. Well, it's a gift that you gave me that I'm giving back. It's a, it's a um, love flowing in an electrical loop. It's a blessing. Yes. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I think it's a good place to wrap up. Maya, can you just give a shout out to where people can find you, what you've got coming next, like where we can direct folks to grab this book? Yeah. So here I'm going to grab the book. Yeah. So letting magic in <laughs> available at a bookstore near you. Um, you can get, you can get this book at any, any bookseller. Um, and if you want signed copies, you can get those from my store, which is herbiary.com, H-E-R-B-I-A-R-Y.com. Um, I sign all the books for the store. So if you order through us, it will be signed. Um, you can find me on my website, which is just my name, M-A-I-A toll.com. And uh, if you want to stay in touch, I have a Substack newsletter called Unkempt and you can find the sign up right on my website. Yes. And I'm going to make an ask of anyone that's listening who buys the book. Don't just buy the book. Also leave a review uh, for us authors. It is so, so important to have those reviews and it helps us so much with these algorithms and, and everything. So if you buy the book, that's great, but also please follow through with leaving a review on the website wherever you purchased it because it's it's such a big help. Yeah, and you know, it, like if you're really into the book and you want to do more than just leave a review, like if you want to bring it to your book club, um, there is a book club. Um, what do they call that? The little question questions oh, yeah, for the yeah. book club mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, that that's on my website, so you can find that there if you need yeah. a little a little more juice. Um, with your book. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Maya. And thanks for everyone else. And I hope you join us for Moonday Mystic uh, next month, where we will be talking with Claire Goodchild and her new book on ancestors. So thanks so much. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Cal. <laughs>